Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians 6. I mentioned to you last week that we're going to look at another passage of the epistles. I wanted you to kind of look it up ahead of time, read through it a bit. Uh, I don't know if you were able to do that or not, because I was saying two weeks from now, and I actually meant next week. So that may have, if you're saying I didn't do it, you can then blame me by saying you said two weeks. And uh, so that's fine. I want to read beginning in verse 13. I don't want to be in 2 Corinthians or that'll be weird. Here we go. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath raised up the Lord and will also raise up us up by his own power. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth without is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They call him Smoking Joe. Smoking Joe. He's the quarterback of the Cincinnati Bengals, and when Los Angeles Rams defeated the Bengals in the Super Bowl, we lost the opportunity to see Smoking Joe light up his famous victory cigar and celebratory smoke. But it's now part of his identity. It's part of his brand. That's what they talk about in professional sports, his brand. And people expect all of this. And all of it is actually kind of funny to Joe's friends because he's actually not a smoker at all. He doesn't like to smoke. It's his dad who's the smoker of the family. So here's my question tonight. Is it wrong to smoke cigars? Is that a sin? Well, maybe eight or nine years ago, we had an older preacher here, an evangelist, who preached a sermon against smoking. I was thinking to myself, he's, he's st still in the 1970s, you know, when uh, smoking was much more prevalent. But he preached a sermon against smoking, and this was the text he used. And I think for most Christians who are in Fundamental churches, the answer is yes, when pressed on the subject, and they usually turn to 1 Corinthians 6.19, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? And the way that that verse was explained to me as a young Christian was that smoking is a sin because it harms the body physically, and that's wrong because the body is God's temple. So we should protect our bodies, keep them safe and healthy, because that's what we would do with God's temple. Let me give you an example. A Christian counseling professor at a major evangelical seminary writes that while, quote, external behaviors like smoking do not defile the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, these choices to gratify our mortal desires 
can distract us from our purpose in glorifying God and reduce our capacity in time and ability through their consequences. It's kind of a scholarly way of saying it's going to make you sick and that'll make it so you can't serve God as effectively as you would. It maybe draws your focus away from God onto smoking and you become less productive. But that's really not a very satisfying answer, at least not to me. Couldn't you argue that even casual sports fans can become distracted by sports away from God? I'll never forget. Oh, maybe our church was two years old and the gentleman who's no longer here uh, with us at our church was manning the, the booth uh, where you do all the recording and all of that. And right in the middle of the sermon, here's what I heard. Ba-da-da-ba-da-da-da. The ESPN, he was, he was searching the sports scores and uh, accidentally uh, his phone was turned on and it just kind of went off. Well, okay. How many Christians skipped a Sunday church service in order to watch the Super Bowl? Is being a casual sports fan not being a good steward of God's temple? Temple? I'm not saying is it right or wrong. Is it not being a good steward of God's temple? Or are there not health consequences to eating fast food? Did any of you see Morgan Spurlock's documentary, Super Size Me, from 2004, where in 30 days he basically destroyed his body eating nothing but McDonald's? Is it a sin to eat fast food? If you're in a hurry and you stop by for some McNuggets, have you violated the law of God? This counselor's answer to me is unsatisfying because the problem isn't about a misplaced focus or lost productivity. I think smoking's bad because it destroys your lungs and you need your lungs to breathe. I think it's incredibly unwise. But I think worse than that, taking a text like 1 Corinthians 6, which is not about smoking, and the, and the Apostle Paul never supports the idea of physically protecting your body from harm, as we'll notice in a little while from 2 Corinthians. This has become the go-to verse on all things related to the human body as it relates to Christians. And this, this comes across my desk about three times a year as I teach a class at Maranatha, Christian Life, Leadership, and Evangelism. First week of an eight-week course, we ask the students to walk through what we call gray areas of the Christian life. And... Inevitably, one of the gray areas that I put up there is smoking. I have a bunch of them. Uh, some of them are easier than others. Uh, we have dating and um, stay-at-home moms versus working moms. We, we just I throw a whole bunch of different things at them. They, they have to pick different ones. You can't have a lot of repeats. And, and then they write out, they do a little research, say why it's a gray area, and then kind of how they're going to rectify that, that in their own hearts. And it's, it's kind of a neat exercise for students in a Bible class. But this is what I get every single time, three times a year, every single time I teach the class for smoking, every single time I get something like this. Quote, this is from a student. Since scripture does not mention smoking, some Christians think it's safe to assume that smoking is permittable since God doesn't talk about it. Yet, there are countless verses on how we, as Christians, should watch how we take care of our bodies. After all, our bodies are the temple of God. And then in quote she put, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Another student wrote, The Bible does not specifically say 
quote, do not smoke cigarettes because it's bad, end quote. But there are a lot of verses that talk about not harming our bodies, like in 1 Corinthians 6.19 it says, and then she quotes the verse, don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Now where did all this come from? And the answer is I have no idea, other than to assume that somewhere along the line, somebody was actually trying to figure out why smoking was bad and came up with, hey, look at this verse, maybe this verse would apply. But if the passage isn't dealing with smoking, smoking and, and it's not, then what is it dealing with? Now, last Sunday night, we were talking about how to study the epistles. And in particular, I gave you three ideas. Make the main points the main thing. You're reading through of them, right? We're, we were discerning what is the main point that, that the writer is saying. Make the main points the main things without discounting secondary information. Remember, we were talking about uh, pastoral compensation. Something is... Really, it's almost secular as that. No, it's not secular. Uh, it's seemingly mundane and secular. That wasn't the main thing. Paul was illustrating a point of how he restricts his liberty to receive a paycheck, as it were, from the Corinthians in order that the gospel would not be harmed. That was kind of the secondary idea, was pastoral compensation. So you don't discount that. That information's there. There's a reason it's there. There's truth to it. But it's not the main point, which was on Christian liberty. It's not the main point. And then I gave you one third last idea, which was don't transform secondary ideas into main points. Don't take something that's secondary and make it primary. And I'm just going to tell you, in churches like ours, this is a major problem. Big problem. Lots of Christians like us who take seriously the Word of God have a tendency to make secondary points Major points. I love the way that um, Al Mohler uh, put it. Uh, he's the uh, president of Southern Seminary, the Southern Baptist Seminary. He said, you know, he said, fundamental, at least there, there's doctrines that are major and doctrines that are minor. And he kind of divided up into three groups. Major top shelf doctrines, minor, lesser, lesser doctrines, and then all the way at the bottom doctrines, okay? Kind of almost preferences. It's kind of how he divides it out. And then Mohler said, you know, he said, the thing with with fundamentalists, is, they tend to make the minorist doctrines major. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty fair. Okay, that's fair. All right. Then he said, the thing with Southern Baptists is we take all the major doctrines and make them minor. <laughs> I said, well, that might be true too, you know. So he was criticizing both sides, right? I, usually when you do that, you're okay. But this is a major problem that churches like ours have. And, and it happens more often than not when we try to proof text. When we try to go find a passage of scripture that defends something we say that we believe. And it can happen when we go looking for evidence to support that particular position or conviction. And this is what happened with smoking. And I don't know how aware you are of this, but um, within particularly the Presbyterian church, there was a divide that took place uh, uh, about the time of J. Gresham Machen. He was, he was a, a scholar scholar, a great evangelical uh, conservative evangelical fundamentalist kind of guy, fundamentalist that being defending the inerrancy and authority and, and uh, inspiration of Scripture. Machen came out and started a Presbyterian church movement out of, um, out of Princeton University and Princeton Seminary because they were going liberal. And he wrote a book uh, on Christianity and, uh, and liberalism, which has yet to be answered by liberals. It, it was just so good. Uh, it's not an easy read, by the way. If you go buy it, uh, you'll have to really pick your way through it. It's, it's difficult, but, but it's unanswered by liberals. He, he just really 
He won the day. He won the field. But Machen came out, and the thing about it was continental. When I say that, I mean Europe. European Presbyterians were pretty conservative at the time, many of them fundamental, but they had two things that bothered the Americans. They drank and they smoked, and it bothered the Americans. And so out of Machen, Machen and Carl McIntyre actually split off, and McIntyre formed a different group, uh, Bible Presbyterians, and I think Orthodox Presbyterians was the uh, Machen group. And a lot of it was over some of these personal life issues. Now, if that's what really what happened, and I don't, I don't know if that's what caused this to occur, but somewhere along the lines, somebody got the idea that this is a great passage to defend the no smoking position. So what I want to do actually is walk through the passage and see what it's really teaching and explain to you why it's not that. So let's explain or look through an examination of your bodies are temples. And the context, number one, the context shows that this is about defilement through immorality. So in verses 14 and 15, the, the um, Apostle Paul explains that our bodies are Christ's. He owns us. See, verse 15, don't you know that your bodies are the members of Christ? You see that? He owns us. And then down at the end, you are bought with a price, verse 20. So we're obligated to glorify God in our bodies. So Jesus has redeemed our bodies, purchased them, so now they're his. Because of that, beginning at the end of verse 15 and going through verse 17, Paul says, our bodies have no business being involved in immorality with the priests and priestesses of false gods in those temples in Corinth, beginning in the middle of verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. So a believer has no business being involved in immorality. The members of Christ, that is our bodies, should not be joined together with the priests and priestesses of the temple. That relationship is reserved for marriage. He talks about this passage. He, he then cites Genesis, right? Two shall become one. Ultimately, then, he brings the Lord. He is one with us in spirit into union with Demons. Do you see that? He says, he says here that you are joining with a priestess. He calls them harlots here. The priestesses of the temple. The priests and priestesses. They are worshiping false gods. And when you join together there, you are actually sinning against your body. You are bringing the Holy Spirit of God into a situation that is connected to idol worship. And that should never, ever be the case. So what does Paul say then in verse 18? What's his conclusion? Do you see it? What does he say? Flee, run. Flee like Joseph is the way my brother Kevin would say it. Flee like Joseph. Anytime you're in a situation where this sin is, is against you, you run because this is now a sin against your body. You're going against your body's intended purpose. Worse, our bodies house the Holy Spirit, verse 19. He is indwelling us. We have received the Holy Spirit from the Father, so they are not ours to do with as we please. My body is not mine. Uh, I think if you, if you want to know the, ma the mantra of today, it's my body. That's been popular since 1972 or so, right? 
That whole mantra goes directly against what's being said here. It's, as a believer, it's not my body, it's God's body. He owns the body. So they're not ours to do with as we please. He purchased it, verse 20, with Jesus' own blood. So we should honor God, verse 20, by avoiding immoral behavior. So I would say the context is about defilement through immorality. It has nothing to do with smoking. But think about number two then. What does he mean then that my body is a temple? And I think number two answers that question by showing that the temple of Paul that he's referring to is the inner sanctum, not the structure itself. When Paul says your body is a temple, we tend to think of a physical building. You think of the temple. And if, unless you understand Jewish uh, temple, the temple in Israel, you understand what it looked like, maybe you can't fully get a grasp of this. The word temple here is the word naos. It is not the whole temple compound. That's, that's a different word entirely. That, that, that word is uh, hieron. Hieron is the whole temple compound. It's actually used, if you turn one page, go over to chapter, 19, uh, chapter 9 and look down at verse 13. Don't you know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the Hieron, of the temple? That's the whole temple complex. This word, back in chapter 6, that's the word naos. And when I use the word naos, what I'm talking about is the inner sanctum. That's actually a reference to, you might say, the holy of holies. This is the, the holy place where the glory of God would be. Uh, by the way, I would say then, probably I would not translate today this word temple. I don't think that's a very helpful translation. I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible says sanctuary. International Standard Version says sanctuary. Young's literal translation has sanctuary. Everything else has temple. But I think it's a very unhelpful translation. Because you read it and say temple, you read chapter 9, temple, you get the same idea in your head. And unless you know Greek, you just don't know the difference. But the body is not a temple structure. It is the naos where God is indwelling. It is actually a holy place. So protecting the outer structure is not Paul's intent. And by the way, if it were, then all of 2 Corinthians doesn't make any sense. Because nobody did a worse job of protecting his outer body than the Apostle Paul. I mean, do you remember what he told the Philippians, right? I know how to be abased. I know how to hunger. I know how to suffer need. He talks about being cold, not having enough food. If you, if you go to 2 Corinthians 4, he says that he's bearing in his body the marks of the Lord Jesus, the dying of Jesus. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 12, death is working in me, but life in you. It, he's saying he and Barnabas together, they are physically dying because of their ministry. Years are being taken off your life. Kind of like what happens when you're um, in your early 20s, and you go to Seven Brew and buy a, a drink that's got 10 times the amount of caffeine and a normal coffee. Is, am, I, am I close? Yeah, it's more sugar. And more sugar than 
like a bowl, a, a, a whole box of ice cream or something. And you know, college students just throwing those down. You're cutting these huge years off your life on the back end, drinking that kind of stuff. I'll never forget sitting in New York City on our first missions trip. And Bill Jones says that he was living on Red Bulls. Do you remember all of you who were there? He said, I drink Red Bull. That's good for me, right? And Tom Murray goes, sure. <laughs> <It's awesome. laughs> it is not good for you to be living on that. <laughs> uh, and Bill is paying the price for it now, I think. Then you go to 2 Corinthians 11. What does Paul say? He says, let me tell you about my ministry. I've been beaten with rods. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned to death. Hey, nobody's taking a worse protection of his body than the apostle Paul. So protecting the outer structure is not Paul's intent. He's talking about protecting the inner sanctum, the inner structure. Which leads me to my third point then. What does it mean to defile the inner sanctum? Well, there's a companion text to this text, and it's back in chapter 3. Because he says this kind of idea twice. 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? But here he's not talking about the physical body of a believer. I think here he's talking actually about church itself, the body of Christ. So the church body is not a physical body. In verses, in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, he's talking about planting the church. Do you see there? Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believe even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So is neither he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that gives the increase. He's talking about planting the church itself in Corinth. He says in verse 9, you are God's farm. You are God's building. He's using these uh, almost these metaphors to explain what God was doing. Just like a guy goes out and he, and he builds a farm for himself or a, a contractor goes out and builds a building. And then he takes that building idea farther. He says that he was the master builder, right? He laid the foundation. And what was the foundation that he laid? That foundation was Jesus Christ. And he says there's no other foundation than that. That's the only foundation on which a church can be built. Is Jesus Christ. And then he says, you need to beware what people are building on that foundation of that church. And he talks about different kinds of things. Faulty building materials and good building materials. So these pastors of the church of Corinth got to build on the foundation that Paul and Apollos laid. If they build with gold and silver and precious stones, then at the end... That it will be shown to their praise that they did right. They'll receive reward. But if they build with wood, hay, and stubble, that is things that burn up, then there'll be nothing when they are actually judged by God. Now, the point of this is that the body here is the church, and the gold, silver, precious stones are the doctrines of Scripture that build people up in the Lord, right? Do, do you see that connection here that he's talking about? He says to him, if any man builds on this foundation, gold, silver, this is verse 12, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. The day will declare it. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he will receive a reward, verse 14. So what I think Paul is teaching here is that a pastor can build upon his church 
on that foundation of Christ, he can build the right kind of building by, by using the right kind of teaching, the right kind of doctrine. But if he builds using the wrong kind of teaching and the wrong kind of doctrine, then in the end, there's just nothing. There's nothing left. And I always, when I'm looking at this text, I think of Tennessee, um, because Tennessee is the, is the state you drive through and you look back in the woods off the highway and you see the, all of the brick chimneys. There's no house, just the brick chimneys, right? Why is the house? Well, it burned down years ago, but the brick chimney didn't burn. So you can see all the brick chimneys. The brick chimneys are, are the good materials. They don't burn up. But the, the wooden cabin's gone. You build upon a foundation of Christ. You build with faulty building materials. And when the day comes, the end comes, the day will declare it. When the sun rises, that is, when, when light is shown on your ministry as a pastor, he's saying, it'll be obvious. It will declare, the day will show, it will declare that, that there's nothing there. That the fire has destroyed everything there. You'll be saved so as by fire, but, but your work will be nothing. You'll have no reward. So what defiles? What defiles a church? Well, it isn't smoking. Right? That, that's not what he's talking about. It's, it's false doctrines. It's false teaching. It, it's, it's bad philosophy and a wrong worldview. That's what defiles a church. That's what destroys a church. And that's the warning here. And if you understand that the defilement is spiritual, not material, it's spiritual, then it's easy to see the connection in chapter 6 where he's dealing now with our bodies as believers that the defilement of those bodies is a spiritual defilement. It's not a physical defilement. Which leads me to my fourth point then. And this to me is the clincher. The physical preservation view undermines the crucifixion argument in chapter 1. Let's go back to chapter 1. The Greeks believed that Jesus dying on a cross was foolish. Chapter 1, look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness. Now the Apostle Paul never really explains why the Greeks believed that it was foolish. The answer that's given, I think that's the right answer, is that the Greeks honored the body almost above all else. Where did the Olympic Games come from? They're, they're Greek in origin. They're from Greece. Uh, the athletes in the Olympic Games would compete unclothed. There were a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons was it, you couldn't cheat, right? <laughs> There's no cheating. Couldn't hide things in your garments. The second reason was, is the Greeks loved the body. You go and see those old ancient carvings, right? They carve a lot of those things. It's kind of embarrassing to walk through those, those places because they're unclothed. The death of Jesus, then, was it a promotion of the body or something else? It was a destruction of the body. That's actually what happened. The cross is a complete annihilation physically of a human being. That's what crucifixion does. It's a destruction of the body. 
In a sense, then, Jesus was not honoring his temple if the temple is a, a physical body by choosing to let his body be destroyed. That, that can't be. You, Jesus couldn't have been doing wrong. I mean, what Jesus did in letting his body be destroyed on, on the cross is much worse than picking up a pack of cigarettes and smoking. And again, I don't think smoking is a good thing. I think it's wrong. You shouldn't do it. Hurt your lungs. Bad idea. But I, I'm just telling you that it's a lot worse to go through crucifixion because you're going to die. And I think the Greeks looked at this and they said, well, that's just foolish. Who would do that? That doesn't make any sense. But if you think about it then, if the Greeks are the ones saying the body must be preserved, if that's their argument, if the cross is foolish because it destroys the body and the body physically must be preserved, now jump to chapter 6. If my body physically is the temple of God and I've got to preserve my physical body, as my students said, you've got to take care of your body. Is that a Greek argument or is it a Christian argument? Well, it's a Greek argument. That, the Greeks, if you argued that today, way back then, they go, absolutely. You don't do anything that hurts your body. Everything you do is to make your body stronger and better. Not to hurt the body. Which makes, to me, the temple argument that's pretty common is a Greek argument. It's not a Christian argument at all. Because preserving the temple physically is the Greek's position. And again, it undermines Paul's confession in 2 Corinthians that his ministry was destroying his body. So this passage is not about smoking. It's about a biblical prohibition against unrestrained immoral activity. Believers, friends, we should have no business in that at all, right? It shouldn't be part of our lives at all. But as I conclude, let me ask you the question. Can I apply it to smoking? And I don't see how you could. I don't see any possible way, after examining the text, you could actually come to the conclusion that the text is about preserving one's physical body against physical harm, when really it's about preserving one's physical body against spiritual harm. That's the emphasis here. Now, let's just stop for a second. If I make this text means something it doesn't mean, what have I done? What have I done? I've done two things. In way of conclusion, here's the problem. I'm reading through the epistles, and I come to a place, and instead of coming to the conclusion that the writer is talking about, I elevate, remember, this is kind of our proclivity. I said that at the beginning. We elevate our minor issues to major doctrines. I elevate my argument to the top, make it most important. What have I done? Two things occur, and I'm going to conclude with this. Number one, we lose what the writer was actually trying to say. Would you say today, friends, which is a bigger problem in the Christian community? Smoking or immorality? I don't even think it's a contest. And if you go back to when everybody smoked in the South, you know, my, when my childhood, I mean, you remember when they had the cigarette machines in the, in the grocery stores and, the, and they had them in restaurants? I remember going to a restaurant, you get the little rubber ball that was 25 cents then, and I think it's still 25 cents now, all these years later. Talk about inflation is not hitting the rubber ball industry. But 
you get those little rubber balls and you bounce them once and they bounce so high in the parking lot, it would be lost. I would lose, every time I would bag a quarter off my mom and get a rubber ball, I would lose it. Within a few minutes, they'd be gone. Somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, there are 10 million little rubber balls all swirled together. You can live on it the size of Texas, right? <laughs> it's the third garbage patch in the Pacific. And right next to it was a machine where you could buy cigarettes. And I would just look at it and go, I don't know. I'm not buying them. It wasn't even allowed it was against the law under a certain age and all that. But you lose what the author is actually saying. And worse, you start saying the, something the author never intended to say, and you give it the authority of Scripture. Do you see why that's a problem? If I'm not saying what the Bible's saying, if I lose what the Bible's saying, then I have a problem. I've, I've undermined something that I should be doing, which in this case is flee fornication. Get run from this sin. It's destructive. It, it harms the, you. It's terrible. It should have no place in the believer's life. If I miss this passage and I'm making an application that is not the application of this text, then I've lost what the author is saying. But then, if I make this text say something it doesn't, I now do something worse. I now take the authority, God's own authority. And I say, based on God's authority, this is what it means, when that's not what it means. Can I tell you what they call that in heaven world? Wood, hay, stubble. Right? That's what the heaven calls it. When I make a passage of scripture mean something that God never intended it to mean, I am building with wood, hay, and stubble. So what's my obligation? I've got to be really, really, really careful that what I'm saying is as true to this as possibly it can possibly be. And what's your obligation when you're reading through it? You're reading through it. You say, okay, all right, I'm going to read Romans this week, and I'm going to start in chapter 1, and I'm going to ask myself this question. You know, what's the main point? Remember, Romans is about the gospel, the righteousness of God explained in the gospel. What's the main point that Paul is saying? I need to read that. I'm going to read all these other things he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the Jewish people in chapter 2 and they are without excuse. And, and he's going to talk about in chapter 3 that everybody has sinned against God. And in chapter 4, he's going to talk about Abraham and, and uh, how his righteousness is not based on the law. And he's going to start talking about faith in chapter 5. And he's going to talk about having peace with God as I lay down my arms against God. Chapter 6 and 7, he's going to talk about some Jewish uh, objections to the gospel that can I continue in sin? The grace might abound. God forbid. And then I'm going to get to chapter 8, that beautiful passage where I'm not condemned because of what God has done for me through Christ in the gospel. And, and as I'm reading through that, the author's real intent becomes clear. And now I am actually learning this is what God wants for me. But if I take that and I read a verse here and I read a verse there and I read a verse over there, maybe what I end up doing is reading the opinions of man superimposed on the Bible and then supported as if it's divine authority. And that is so dangerous. I conclude by saying don't smoke, right? <laughs> I just want that to be clear because I, I preached once on how we use our words and I said the word moron is not a bad word. One young man went home and started using it a lot. His mom said something to him. He said, pastor said it's not a bad word. So I got to be careful, okay? Understand. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. Kids, don't smoke. It's bad. But, but, this is not the passage defending that. Let's pray. Father, help us to grow in our understanding of your word, to be better because of it, I pray.